Jesus knows if our expression of faith is genuine. And at the end of chapter 2, John told us that many believed in Jesus because of his signs, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. The reason that Jesus can know that our, whether our expression of faith is genuine or not is because he can see into the heart of man. Chapter 2, verse 24 says he knew all men. Now, in chapters 3 and 4, we get two examples of Jesus seeing into the human heart. First, with Nicodemus here in chapter 3, and then with the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. And Jesus' message to Nicodemus is surprising. And it is this. We all need new birth, but we cannot have it unless the Father grants it to us. And so this morning, the focus of our study will be on John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to divert from what we had there in the in your um, sermon schedule, and we'll pick up verses 9 through 16 next week. So let's read the text here, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. This is the Word of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. In John 3, the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, we see that God is the initiator of our salvation. He is the author of our salvation. In in this chapter, we're going to see two main points that describe this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. First, we're going to see that eternal life is impossible apart from God's work of regeneration. That's going to be the focus of our text today. Eternal life is impossible apart from God's work of regeneration. And then next week, we'll see that eternal life is impossible apart from God's gift of faith. That, that we need God to do a work in us. We, we need Him to regenerate us through the power of the Spirit. And then next week, the only way that we can respond is faith is if God even gives us that gift. Or to state it chronologically, God does this work of regeneration, which leads to our faith, which uh, results in eternal life. But the main point here is that God is the initiator of our salvation. So for this morning... Eternal life is impossible apart from God's work of regeneration. Eternal life is impossible. So we know that God is the initiator of salvation because we cannot have eternal life apart from God's work of regeneration. The word regeneration just means um, where God imparts spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. So He's actually making something alive that was once dead. And that cannot happen unless God initiates the work, unless God does the work. 
And that's what Jesus wants Nicodemus to know. That's what Jesus wants us to know today. That salvation comes from God. And that's what we see in verses 1-3. through three. Salvation comes from God. We see the setting of the story in verses 1 and 2. You have Nicodemus who is described there in verse 1 as the ruler of the Jews or a ruler of the Jews. Meaning they didn't have a, a king, uh, but instead they had 70 ruling elders, 70 members of the Sanhedrin who understood the religious uh, background of, of the Jews and they understood the Old Testament and, and they, they made choices based on that. Nicodemus is one of these 70 men. So he's kind of a religious elite, we could say. And he meets Jesus at night. Notice verse 2, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, and there's a lot of discussion. If you have a study Bible, uh, you'll see this or any commentary will discuss this idea of night. What does John mean when he says that Nicodemus came at night? Was it because he was timid and he didn't want to be noticed by other people and so he came at night when no one else would notice him, possibly? Um, was it that this night is actually a sign of spiritual darkness like it seems to be in the rest of John's Gospel? You know, Every time John talks about night, he's actually talking about spiritual darkness that has come into the world. It could be that as well. Um, to be honest, I'm not really sure what, if there is any significance to this idea of him coming at night. I tend to, meet, I tend to think that it just means that he came at night. But there could be more to it, um, and um, that will be for you to study and to debate amongst yourselves. All right, so we see the setting there. Then we see Nicodemus makes a claim. He actually doesn't ask a question, does he? Notice verse 2. He says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can come, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so he doesn't technically ask a question. Instead, he comes with a word of respect. He says, Rabbi, teacher, I know that there's something about you that you actually come from God. In fact, he doesn't say, I know. He says, we know. Right? He says, Rabbi, we know, which seems to be that he's speaking on behalf of the Sanhedrin, the other religious leaders, that, that these miracles can only be sourced in God. And the reason I say miracles is because he says signs. No one can do these signs, these miracles that you do unless, unless God is with him. So there's something about you, Jesus, that, that indicates that you are from God. Yet, even though he doesn't ask a question, Jesus knows his heart. Remember chapter 2, verse 24? And Jesus knows what's ultimately at stake. For Nicodemus, he was coming with a question about identity, right? Who is Jesus? Are you a prophet? Are you something greater than just you know someone who can do miracles on behalf of God? Who are you? But Jesus knows that there's something deeper in the heart of Nicodemus that he needs to understand. And so Jesus gets to the heart of the issue in verse 3. Nicodemus is trying to understand who Jesus is, but Jesus knows Nicodemus, and he knows that Nicodemus is actually missing the boat on eternal life, on how a person can receive eternal life. And the reason we know that is because of Jesus' response. Notice in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, if we're, we're tracking with what Nicodemus is talking about, we might look at Jesus' response and say, well, that came out of left field. What does that have to do with anything? I was talking about you coming from God and doing miracles. You're talking about how a person can get eternal life. Jesus prefaces his statement by saying, truly, truly, I say to you. Whenever you see that statement from Jesus, I think it's used a couple dozen times uh, 
it's recorded for us in the gospel a couple dozen times, and every time Jesus uses it to say something of, of importance. And what Jesus is doing here is he's not changing the subject. He's not saying it doesn't matter who I am. He's actually saying there's something that you're missing more important than my identity, and that is the nature of eternal life and how it comes, the destination. And so Jesus' basic statement in response to Nicodemus is, you can't have eternal life without the new birth. You cannot have eternal life without spiritual birth. There are several things we need to see here in this verse. First, we need to see that the kingdom of God, seeing it, is dependent on being born again. Do you see that connection? Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So a person that's not born again, can he see the kingdom of God? Jesus is saying no. Okay, Very simple, but we need to make sure we understand that part. Second, we need to understand what it means to see the kingdom of God. What does it mean to see the kingdom of God? And um, before I show you this from another text, what I think it means... Uh, notice in verse 5 that Jesus used a, uses a parallel expression. In verse 5 he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot, instead of saying, see the kingdom of God, he says, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus uses these two phrases, see the kingdom and enter into the kingdom, as identical, synonymous, coterminous. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. Let me show you how these two phrases, as well as... Um, a couple of others are used interchangeably to help us understand what he's talking about. And this will fit into the context of what Jesus is trying to explain to them, which is trying to explain to Nicodemus, which is how a person can have eternal life. So notice Matthew 19, verse 23. Here, the rich young ruler has just walked away sad because he didn't want to give away all of his riches. And now Jesus is using this as an opportunity to teach the disciples and he says in verse 23, Truly, truly, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to, notice this phrase, enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven is, is identical to the kingdom of God. The reason that the Jews called it the kingdom of heaven was because they saw the name of God as, as um, sacred, and they actually didn't say the name of God. They didn't say the name Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name for it. They would instead use the, the name Adonai, because they respected that. They didn't even want to write those letters down on, on paper uh, or on, on a scroll or whatever. So the kingdom of heaven is just another way to say kingdom of God. So keep that in mind here. There's to enter the kingdom of God. And then notice verse 24. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So there you see the, the parallelism between kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. Same sorts of ideas Jesus is talking about. Notice, notice the disciples' response in verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished, and they said, Then who can be saved? Saved? What are we talking about saved? Jesus is talking about enter the kingdom of God. Why are you talking about salvation? Does Jesus ever rebuke them and say, No, you misunderstood me? And I would suggest to you that Jesus does not rebuke them. In fact, he continues on with his conversation in verse 26 without... Uh, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are, impo are, 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 are possible. Excuse me. So what he's saying is, yes, entering the kingdom of heaven, entering the kingdom of God, being saved are all the same thing. And then notice verse 29. Jesus continues, and he says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mothers 
or, or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. So you have these four phrases, enter the kingdom of heaven, enter the kingdom of God, being saved and inheriting eternal life, all meaning the same thing. So turn back to John 3. Now we have a, a, a clearer picture of what Jesus is talking about. Whatever he means by born again, he's saying that that must happen in order for a person to have eternal life, to be saved, to enter the kingdom, to see the kingdom. That has to happen. And so that's the third thing we need to see, which is that, that a person needed to be born again. Now, when Jesus said that a person must be born again, he's not saying that they had to be born a second time. In fact, that's what Nicodemus thinks he's saying. The word again that's translated again in our text is, comes from a Greek word that also can be translated from above. Let me show you that in this chapter, chapter 3, verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is, a, a, who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth, and he who comes from heaven is above all. So notice that first line, he who comes from above. That phrase, from above, comes from the same Greek word that's translated again in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 3. Okay, so it's a word that can have two different meanings. We have similar things like that, uh, like with the word funny. You know, I thought there was something funny about this meal. Kind of, we're talking about the taste of it. It didn't taste right. And, but we could also say, there's, I, thought th- I thought there was something funny about this joke. We actually thought that that, that, was, that brought laughter. And, and, and there's, so there's two different meanings to the same word. And so this shouldn't be surprising to us that what Jesus was talking about is you must be born from above. But when Nicodemus heard it, he understood it to mean born again, born a second time, Right? And so how can we know which one Jesus actually meant? Well, Nicodemus understands him to mean, again, born a second time. But Jesus corrects him in verse 5, and he explains it a different way. He says, okay, the the word again doesn't work for you, so instead I'm going to say, you must be born of what? In verse 5, water and the Spirit. So what he's doing is he's explaining what he means by born from above. You didn't understand when I said born again, so I'm going to explain it a different way. Water and the Spirit. So here's what I think is going on. Jesus is saying, you must be born from above. Nicodemus is hearing, I must be born a second time. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Let me explain this to you. You must be born from above. So no one can be saved apart from the new birth. Even a man, amazingly, like Nicodemus, who is a gifted, knowledgeable, and religiously, uh, 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 a man with great pedigree religiously, right? I mean, he is, he's got it all. He's got the whole package. As far as someone who's going to enter the kingdom of God, Nicodemus would be the guy that we would expect that would be able to do it. And yet Jesus is saying, no, you cannot be saved apart from the new birth. And if you think about it, the picture of, the spirit, of spiritual birth is a good one, right? Because how active were you in your physical birth? Right? I mean, how active were you bringing yourself into existence physically. God had to do the work through your parents, through the process of procreation and bringing life to you. And in the same way, God has to do the work of spiritual birth in you and in me. So first, salvation comes from God. Secondly, in verses 4 through 8, we see that salvation demands 
a unilateral work of God through His Spirit. When I say unilateral, I mean a one-sided work. It's, it's initiated by God. God is the one who does the work, verses 4 through 8. Now, Nicodemus doesn't understand. There's some confusion there in verse 4. He says, wait a second, you're talking about being born again. How can this be possible? How can a person go back into his mother's womb? It's just a, a silly picture. I mean, it's interesting because Nicodemus, remember, comes with a statement, you are from God. I know that you are because of your signs. Jesus says, you need to be born again. And now Nicodemus is not saying, well, wait a second, I wasn't even talking about that and I'm not concerned about that. Now it's actually sparked his interest and he realizes this is actually what I need. I need to consider what it takes to have eternal life. And he's saying that I have to have a second birth. Jesus responds in verse 5. And again, he uses this phrase to help us kind of wake up. This is an important phrase that he's about to say. Truly, truly, I say to you. And this time, instead of saying, you must be born again, which Nicodemus didn't understand properly, he uses a different way of saying it. He says, you must be born of the water and the Spirit. Notice the parallelism here. He's saying the same thing as he said in verse 3. Verse 3, unless you're born again. Verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. There's the parallelism. To be born again is to be born of the water and the Spirit. Do you see that? And then to enter or to see the kingdom of God in verse 3 is the same as to enter into the kingdom of God in verse 5. So Jesus is saying the same thing. He's just saying it a different way so that Nicodemus can understand. The question we need to ask now is what does he mean by being born of the water and the Spirit? The language of water and the Spirit is mentioned a number, number of times together in the Bible. And if you look in the margin of your Bible, if you have cross-references there, your Bible most likely points you to Ezekiel 36, 25-27. And that's a good place to go. It's a passage that Nicodemus likely would have known. And there, God makes a promise through the prophet Ezekiel saying, I will sprinkle clean water on them, on you, and I will put my spirit on you. He's not saying I'm going to do two different things. He's saying, I'm going to save you. You, nation of Israel, who, who is opposed to me right now, I'm going to bring new life to you. I'm going to sprinkle water on you. I'm going to bring my spirit on you. Coterminous again. The same idea. So in Ezekiel, he's not talking about two kinds of birth, physical and spiritual. Some people say, well, maybe the physical has to do with the water. You know, we're somehow we're born of water. And then the spiritual is born of the spirit. But I think what he's saying is, when Jesus said, born of the water and the spirit, he's saying, God promised that He would bring clean water on you and that the Spirit would come on you. That's salvation. Others argue that this is talking about baptism. Somehow we need baptism in order to enter the kingdom of God. Obviously, from the rest of Scripture, we know that that's not the case. Instead, Jesus is saying you need new life. You need a new creation. Listen to Titus 3.5 and you'll hear how these two concepts go together to describe our salvation. He saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So you have the, both the ideas of water and the Spirit coming together to talk about what it is to be saved. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about salvation, inheriting eternal life, entering the kingdom of God. These can only happen if God does the work. God is the initiator of salvation. 
Salvation comes from God. It demands this unilateral, one-sided work of God. The Spirit has to do something. In verse 6, Jesus, Jesus explains his claim by making a, a, a basic observation. And it is this. Like produces like. Like produces like. So what do you expect when two human beings procreate? Do you expect a fish to be born from that or a bird? No, we expect another human, a small human, that bears the likeness of his parents because like produces like. And the same thing is true of the spiritual realm, right? That if we, want to, if we expect to have any spiritual birth, then that birth has to come from something that is like that, right? It has to come from the Spirit. So actually he's working backwards. He's saying, see how it works with, with humans and with birds and with fish, right? That like produces like. Now let's work backwards. How do you get spiritual life? It's got to come from the Spirit. It's the only place it can come. Look at verse 6. It says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The spiritual comes from the spiritual. If there's going to be any spiritual life, it has to come from the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 7, Jesus says, This should not be surprising. The claim in verse 3 should not have been a shock to you that I was talking about. You have to be born from above. This should not be surprising. I was not saying born again like he thought. I was saying you must be born from above. Notice what he says. He repeats his initial phrase. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. So he goes back to what he said in verse 3, but by now he's actually explained what he meant, right? Before Nicodemus saying born again, it sounds like two births, that doesn't make sense. And Jesus said, no, when I, meant, when I said born again, I meant born from above, born of the water and the spirit, born of the spiritual and that's why I told you, you must be born again. You must be born from above. In verse 8, you see that the work of salvation is determined by God. The work of salvation is determined by God. The reality is that we can't control who is saved and who is not. We can't see into the hearts of people to see if they're saved or not. We don't have that ability like God does. But, like the wind... We can see the effects of the new birth, can't we? Verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the analogy here is between the wind and something else. The wind is something that you can't see. You can only see what? You can only see its effects, right? You can see kind of the things that it does. You may be able to feel the effects of it, but you... You, you see the leaves kind of rustling as the wind goes through and you know it's been there. You don't understand where it's come from or where it's going, but you know it's been there because of its effects. And often what happens is we look at this verse and we do so carelessly and we compare the wind to what? The Spirit. And so we say this is how the Spirit moves. We don't know where He's going. We don't know where He's coming. But we see His effects. And you know what? There's truth in that statement, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Notice the text. What is he comparing the wind to? Not to the Spirit. So is... What does the text say? Everyone born of the Spirit. So what is he comparing the wind to? Not to the Spirit himself, but to... He's comparing it to us. 
those who are born of the Spirit. And so what I think he's saying is we can't see who it is that's saved and who's not. But we see the effects that God's work of regeneration has on those people. That, 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 that a work has been done. Like the wind, we see the effects that salvation has on people. And Jesus, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you need that work to be done to you. You must be born from above. You must be born again. Next week, we'll continue the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and we'll see that we know that God is the initiator of salvation, not only because eternal life is impossible apart from God's work of regeneration, but also because eternal life is impossible apart from God's gift of faith. We'll see that in verses 9 through 21. So let's consider this principle um, that I think is drawn from the text, and that is that even the most religious among us need the new birth. Even the most religious among us need spiritual birth. No one is exempt from his need of the Holy Spirit to do a work of salvation in him, no matter how religious he is. In three weeks, we'll see that the worst among us are not outside the reach of God's grace, like we just sang Right, Come, lonely heart. It's, it's a song about John chapter 4 and the Samaritan woman. And that there's no, no one who is too small for his mercy and no sin is too great for his grace. That's the Samaritan woman. She has all this sin that seems to prevent her from being able to be saved. And Jesus is saying, no, it's, there's nothing too great for me to save. No, not, no problem too great that I can't save. And so we really see in chapters 3 and 4 this, this spectrum, don't we? Of what kind of people that God can save. He can save the most religious among us. You know, the ones that have all the pedigree, the background, the kind of the holy life, the life of piety. And He can save the worst among us, can He? The ones who have, have been with five men, right? Who are living with a man right now. Who are outcasts, outsiders. God can save any of them if they're willing to repent and believe. The Lord has power to save. Maybe you come here today as a religious person. You grew up in a church. Your parents were devout Christians, perhaps. They taught you the basics of Christian life. and They taught and practiced Christian principles at home. And you kind of just um, followed on there in their footsteps by going to church yourself and you think that maybe because of your pedigree because of osmosis that if you're just around spiritual people enough then somehow eternal life will rub off on you but Jesus wants you to know today that no one even you who are so religious cannot inherit eternal life unless God does a work of regeneration in you You need to be born from above. You need God to initiate salvation in you. Now you might be thinking, well, if it's up to God, then what does that have to do with me? I mean, I just have to kind of wait around to see if something happens, right? Well, we'll get into this more next week, but what you need to know is that the means of your salvation 
is absolutely all God. It's God's grace. But it's conditioned upon your response, your faith. Last week I used the illustration of Lazarus being raised from the dead, and I'll use it again. And I won't stop using it because it's a good one. Lazarus had a command from Jesus to obey. Lazarus, come forth. But Lazarus cannot obey that command until Christ first grants him life. He has to miraculously give life to Lazarus' dead body. And in the same way, God is calling you to do something. Like He called Lazarus. Lazarus, your salvation is conditioned on your faith. You haven't earned anything with your faith. God's still the initiator in it, but you have a responsibility to obey. God is calling you, no matter how religious you are, to repent and believe in Jesus as the only means of salvation. Because, as we'll see in verse 15, whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. So there's the condition. You want eternal life, Jesus says here, you must be born again, but next week He's going to say, you have to believe. Now you might be thinking, well then how do I know if, if I have life? How do I know if God's wrought this work in me? How do I know if the Spirit's moved in me? My response to you would be, how did Lazarus know that he had physical life? He actually was able to obey the command to come forth, wasn't he? He had the ability to do that. Do you see that? Someone who's dead cannot obey that command. Jesus could have said to all the graves, come forth. Who is it that's going to obey? The one, Only the ones who He gives life. Do you see? So, so how can you know if you have spiritual life? And the answer is, are there signs of life? Like for Lazarus, were there signs of life? Have you obeyed the command to repent and believe? And are you continually persevering in that? in those commands, right? It's not just a one-time thing. Well, I repented and believed back there and kind of given that up, but I know that God will preserve me to the end. No, it is, I've repented and believed and I am repenting and believing and continually trusting in Jesus and turning from my sins. That's the sign of genuine spiritual life. You are resisting sin. You're eradicating sin from your life. You're gladly obeying God's commands. You're growing in the fruit of the Spirit. That's the sign of spiritual life. Nicodemus didn't think he needed new birth. He didn't think he needed to be born from above. But this is the power of the gospel, isn't it? It breaks down the wall of self-righteousness even among the most religious. Because God will not accept into His family anyone unless they've been born from above, unless they believe in His Son. And that's something that has to start with God but is a response by us. We need to love His Son. This is something that we do from the beginning, that we continually do, and we must do to the end. We must love His Son. How do we know if we love His Son? John fourteen fifteen. If you love Me, keep My commandments. 1 John 2, 3. This is how we know that we know Him. If we keep His commandments. This is not how we earn salvation, by keeping His commandments. This is how we know if we're in His family. This is how we know that we love His Son, that we enjoy learning the commandments of God and obeying them. 
Now, at the time of Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus, he doesn't appear to believe, unless only superficially. But apparently the story for Nicodemus is not over because in chapter 7, verses 45 to 52, Nicodemus is one of the Sanhedrin, the only one apparently, that stands up for Jesus when the Sanhedrin are ready to condemn him. And they say, what, are you going to follow him too? And then in chapter 19, verses 38 through 42, who is it that helps Joseph of Arimathea bury the body of Jesus but Nicodemus? And so this man who comes at night to find out or to at least express his approval of Jesus and his miracles is awakened to a new reality that he has to have spiritual birth for himself. So no matter how religious you are, no matter what kind of background you have, you cannot ride into heaven on the coattails of your parents. So I say to you, no matter how old you are, young you are, you know, if you're, you're here because your parents are making you come here. You are not a Christian because your parents are Christians. You need to be saved yourself. You must repent and believe. God has to do a work in you. And will you be willing to respond to the work that He's doing by calling you to repentance and faith? Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your voice once again. The voice of God. Let's pray. Father, thankful for the clear message of the gospel. It is, it is your work, and when we see it as your work, it, it really highlights your mercy in saving us. Why would you ever save someone like us who was your enemy, who, who were opposed to you, who hated you and, and hated your laws? Why would you ever send your greatest possession, Jesus, your Son, to die for us, and yet you have? And that's why we're amazed at your grace. So, Lord, for those who are Christians here today, we pray that we would revel in and triumph or uh, take joy in this great truth that you have sent Jesus to save sinners like us. That this is a message of hope and confidence that we can have. For those here who perhaps are resting on their laurels, the religious pedigree or just being around church for a while, maybe even their membership in the church, whatever the case, it could be embarrassing to acknowledge at this point that they have not repented and believed, but far more embarrassing will it be on the day of judgment when they stand before God and, he, and, and Jesus says to them, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. What a terrible day that would be. Lord, humble Humble your children today. Call them to yourself. Bring them to true repentance. May they acknowledge your worth and their worthlessness before you, their need to to rely on you completely for their salvation. We pray for your help in that. In Jesus' name, amen.